Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And let me, uh, let me say that as we turn to chapter 9, uh, the bad news is we're going to be looking at probably the most pessimistic, dreary text of this entire book. The good news is, I'm going to start with some jokes. As we look at Ecclesiastes 9, at the title, Good News and Bad News. Well, one time this man was riding down the road on his motorcycle and had a terrible accident and uh, they rushed him into surgery and uh, as he began to wake up, uh, the doctor told him, said, uh, young man, I've got some good news and some bad news. And uh, he said, well, start me with the bad news. And he said, well, the bad news is we've had to amputate, amputate both of your legs. And he said, well, what's the good news? He said, well, the guy in the next room overheard us, and he wants to buy your boots. Man went back for his tests, and the doctor said, well, we've got all your results. Then I got some good news, and I've got some bad news. He said, well, give me the good news first. I always hear everybody wanting the bad news. So give me the good news first. He said, the good news is you only have 24 hours to live. He said, how is that good news? He said, well, the bad news is I started trying to call you and tell you yesterday. One more. There was two boys sitting in the dugout, and uh, they didn't get to play a lot. And it's hot, and their minds wandered during the game, and everything going on, and so they began to talk of deep things and talk of life and death, and one of them began to posit his opinion that they would play baseball in heaven. If heaven was really heaven, they'd play baseball in heaven, and everybody would get to play. Another guy said, I'm just not sure about that. I don't, I don't see God striking me as caring much about playing ball and all that. And so they argued for a little bit, and then finally they decided, well, i tell you what, let's make a pact. Whoever goes first, when they get to heaven, they'll come back, and tell the other one whether they, that they play baseball in heaven or not. They shook on it and went about their business, went about life. And the season ended. And there during the off season, and all, one of the players gets the news that the other one had died. Terrible, tragic death. And so, as you know, life goes on. Before long, it was time for spring training. It was time to start back, and they start playing again, and the game start, and this boy's still not getting to play much. And so one day, he's just sitting there in the dugout by himself. And he feels a tap on the shoulder, and he turns to see his old bench mate. And startled, and nearly at the point of passing out, he couldn't believe it. He thought the sun had got to him, and 
well, what are you doing here? He said, well, I come back to bring you the news. He said, what are you talking about? He said, you don't remember last year when we were sitting here and we began to talk about baseball in heaven and whether they play. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I completely forgot. And he said, well, I've come back to tell you. He said, well, tell me. He said, well, I got good news and bad news. He said, well, give me the good news. He said, because it can't be that bad about heaven. He said, well, the good news is they do play baseball in heaven. Man, that is great. He said, and everybody gets to play. He said, oh, that's, that's even better. He said, well, what's the bad news? He knew it couldn't be that bad. And he said, well, they've got you scheduled to pitch next Tuesday. <laughs> Life's full of good news and bad news. I wanted to lighten it up because, listen, today is all about death and life. Solomon was in his aged years when he wrote this book. You remember when we first started and looked at the outline? We see him writing, no doubt, many of the Proverbs in his prime. And we see his Song of Solomon uh, as a, a young, vibrant king that understood God's touch and, and the love that God gives him. But in Ecclesiastes, we see a broken old man who had taken his eyes off the Lord and he had begun to experience all the things the world had to offer and found it all to be vanity. His bubble had burst. And over and over and over again, now listen to me, all of us, all of us, at times, consciously or unconsciously try to either supplement or subjugate the presence and power of God with things of the world. Things. And Solomon over and over and over again says, things cannot, will not replace the power and presence of God. It's all vanity. Life under the sun, as we've heard in other places of Scripture, is a few days and full of trouble for everyone. And so today I want to give you the good news. I want to give you the bad news. He said in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 1, For all this I considered in my heart even to declare all this. First of all, he had to muster up the energy to express what he could not get to come together from his head to his heart. He said, I've considered in my heart even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knows either love or hatred by all that is before them. All things come alike to all. There's one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean, and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth, and to him that sacrificeth, sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner, and he that swears as he that fears an oath. There's an evil among all things that are done under the sun. 
that there is one event unto all. Yes, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. He had considered all this stuff. He would considered all the things of life and come to the conclusion. Now, it seems very fatalistic, and it seems very pessimistic. And if you read this out of context, you'd say, what's the use? I can just live however I want. I have, I have no impact on anything. I might as well just do whatever I want, and God's going to sort it out. I can't do anything about it. But let's read it in its context. First of all, we look at the subject of death and life. First of all, in verse 1, he said, It all, everything, our life, our, our wisdom, our works are in the hand of God. We need to understand in the fullness of this text, everyone dies. This is not popular except for the funeral director. You know? But the truth is, everyone dies. How many people have not died since creation? Two. Two have not died. Enoch and Elijah. I believe they're not going to escape death, but that's a whole other study and another doctrine for another day. But even the Son of God died. For he says in Hebrews, I believe, 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. But we are running from it as hard as we can. We will take whatever we can, rub some stuff on it, do whatever, I mean, look, we will do whatever we can to prolong the life. But so often we forget that the bad news about it is it's unavoidable. It's unavoidable. People don't get up in the morning as the old westerns used to like to portray. And we saw it as very, very heroic. The Indian would stand there. I can remember in the old spaghetti western with Clint Eastwood and that old Indian that was in all of his movies. And he stood there and he looked out and he said, you know, today is a good day to die. I've seen some beautiful days, but I ain't seen one yet that looked like a good day to die. It's unavoidable. There's nothing you can do about it. I've seen some of the greatest health nuts have heart attacks and die. And here in this scripture, he said, and the people who take care of themselves, die. And the people who don't, die. And the people who do good, die. And the people who do bad, die. And the wicked and the righteous and the ones who sacrifice, the one who don't sacrifice, they die. It's unavoidable. We're going to look at dealing with it. But the number one fact is death is unavoidable. unavoidable. You cannot run from it. He said, it's all. What did he say in verse 1? It's all in the hand of God. The sovereign, holy, immutable, timeless, powerful, 
all-knowing, all-present God is in control. He's in control. Here's why we believe in being pro-life. That man neither can cause life, nor should we think we have a right to end it in that way. God's in control of it. Outside of righteous judgment. It is unavoidable. People are going to die. Fact two, it's caused by sin. What did God tell Adam? Let's go back. And see, this is where our whole mindset, our whole doctrine falls apart in this world if we try to start caving to the popular culture, popular belief, trying to make people feel at ease and feel good. If we denigrate or diminish truth of Genesis, number one, that God created it, and number two, that God gave a direct, clear command, you can eat, listen, he didn't say you eat half of it, but half of it you couldn't. He didn't say you could eat three quarters of it, but a quarter you can't. He said you can take of every single thing in this garden, but one, one thing. Mamas and daddies, you know how that feels. You have told your kids, look, go in there and play with all those toys. Stay out of here, where they want to go. How many people have ever touched wet paint when the sign says wet paint? We want, the flesh craves that which we're not supposed to have. And so Adam sinned and he said, what did God tell him? God said, if you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Not that, you know, there's a great possibility. There is a 50-50 chance. You know, the odds are stacked against it. No, he said, you shall surely die. And like I used to love to hear Dr. Phillips as he would speak of Genesis. And he said, isn't it odd that a book named Genesis beginning with creation ends with a coffin. And all the way through when God, listen, when God finished creating the universe, or, I mean everything, when he spoke the stars and the earth and all the planets into existence, when he took some dust and he formed a man, and he breathed life into him. And he did surgery on him and took a rib out and created woman. When he got done, when he finished, and he sat down, he looked over all of it, and he said, it is good. It is good. But Adam and Eve corrupted that which is good. Because you see, sin is not the absence of good. Sin is the corruption of that which is good. Do you know, you remember the parable where Jesus talked about putting up your treasures in heaven where what? Where moths do not, moth and rust does not corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying lay up your treasures in a place that sin cannot touch it. Because sin corrupts. 
You take a piece of pot metal and lay it outside, and it may not rain for a month, and it's still going to rust. It's going to rust. You can take a plain two-by-four. You lay it right out in front of this building. Lay it right out there in the middle of the grass and just lay it there for, for several weeks or a month or two, and before long, termites will find its way to that one piece of wood and begin to eat it up. Just lay some wood out on the ground and see what happens. It corrupts because of being here on this earth. Life has been corrupted by sin, and in so all men die. Because of that sin, listen, God, this is our Christian worldview. God created it, man messed it up. But thank God for Jesus, who God sent to redeem it. And to tear down the middle wall of partition. The bad news is everyone dies. The fact is it's unavoidable. It's caused by sin. And hear this. Death is not preferential. We've ever, we've ever looked and said, why? Why does bad things happen to good people? Well, see, your whole logic's messed up by asking the question. How is that? There were only four. I know this is not popular. This is gospel. Now hear me. I'm not telling you the four-year-old died and went to hell. But I'm telling you all men die because of sin. All men. Whether direct or indirect, we are born in the Adamic sin that is in the bloodline from Adam and Eve. You know, I went to the doctor 10, 12 years ago, hadn't been feeling good, had some headaches and other issues. I could tell my pulse felt like my heart was running away with me. I went to the doctor, went through the whole blood work, I mean everything. And he said, I got some good news and some bad news. He said, the good news is it's treatable. I said, okay. I said, so what is, he says, high blood pressure. You're dealing with high blood pressure and cholesterol and things like that. And I said, yeah, my dad, had, he said, yeah, you filled out this form. You gave us all your medical history and your family's history. I said, well, I, listen, I'm still young. I still am pretty active. I said, I, I'll start exercising even more. I, I can eat better. I know I can eat better and stop the late night Mexican runs on Sunday night, and, you know, I can cut some of that stuff out. He looked at me, and he said, oh, no, don't do that. I said, really? You're a doctor. You're supposed to. He said, the reason I say, he said, yeah, you can eat better. You need to exercise more. He said, but it's not going to change anything, and that's the bad news. He said, go out in the parking lot. You got a cell phone? I said, yes, sir. He said, your dad's still living, right? And I said, yes, sir. He said, go out and call him and tell him thank you because this is, because of him. And he said, and if I'm reading your charts right, your daddy could thank his daddy. Because it is genetic. You can exercise all you want, you still are going to have high blood pressure. Because you were born into those things. Listen. You cannot be good enough to break the chain of sin. I love it. On Mother's and Father's Day, everybody posts online, the greatest mother and the greatest father. And I always laugh. I never post that because I know the truth. Mine are. 
And so, uh, but you know, it's wonderful to hear that about, but you know, as great as I believe my mom and dad are, they had to get on their face before a holy God and repent of their sins. And God had to save them for them to go to heaven. The most loving, best cook grandma in the world will die and go to hell without Jesus. Hear me now. That's the Bible we say we believe. That's what the Bible says. It's not just harlots and tax collectors that Jesus came to die for. He came to die for the most moral good man that would give you the shirt off his back. And the most wonderful, sweet, loving grandma. That's who Jesus died for. It is unavoidable. It is caused by sin and it is not preferential. I have done, listen to me, I have done funerals. I have officiated funerals from stillborn to 99 years of age and everything in between. I've done 17-year-olds, 21-year-olds, 73-year-olds, 47-year-olds. I've done it anything and everything you can imagine. I've done it where they died of good, ripe, old age in their sleep. And I've done it in tragic auto accidents and the most vicious cancer. I've done all of those things. I've done them where they lay there trying to have transplants. And where parents were heartbroken. And it's never easy. And Christians, hear me. Because we are to minister and love on people who are hurting. But I've got news for you. Don't try to make up words to try to make people feel good because there's a danger of being unbiblical. Number one, don't tell them they got their wings. Look, Red Bull is more likely to give you wings than you to get them when you go to heaven. And don't denigrate a saint who's lived for the Lord as making them a servant because that's what angels do. But we are the redeemed We are the redeemed. Jesus died for us to set us free. But don't go in there talking about, and listen, especially if you're talking to believers and you're a believer, don't say they went to a better place like it's this some mystical place that Disney created. Tell them, hey, they're in the presence of a holy God. We know, right? That which we may not have seen with our eyes, we know through faith. A country that's not made with earthly hands. Speak about something you know about. The problem is we don't know anything about it. But when you're there, speak words of comfort and peace that God gives you in understanding that if they died in Christ, their victory has been received. Right? Do you know why? Death is such bad news. Honestly, I would venture to say if you're over the age of 18 and you're in in this room, somewhere in your life, you have almost got depressed thinking about your own mortality. Somewhere along the way, Satan has tempted you to become depressed and despondent because you're worried about dying. So how would you know that? I'm going to tell you. 
If you have it, you're a lot bigger person than I am. Because I have done it. There's been days where I really got in touch with my mortality. And I understand I'm not as young as I used to. And statistically, I'm closer there than I were, was to Georgia Baptist Hospital in 1964. Now, I want to be real. Let's, let's get this. I told you it was going to be a heavy message. That's why I started off. This is no laughing matter right here, though, is it? But the truth is, let's, let's be real honest with ourselves. Let's be honest before God. Death in Christ, is it a bad thing or a good thing? It's a great thing. But the reason why we, we get so worked up about it and we don't want to talk about life insurance, we don't want to talk about, I don't. I don't. Why not? I mean, live a bunch of money and they all live big. When I'm gone, I can't enjoy it. Why am I going to pay for it? I don't want to talk about tombstones and all that stuff. Man, that's just morbid, you know. I don't, I don't enjoy that, but here's, here's the deal. We dread it and we fear it because we don't understand it and we've not been there. We've not been there. Emily, wouldn't you agree that before we went to Haiti, there was some concerns? Ben, wouldn't you? I mean, we didn't know how it was going to work and all that. Wouldn't you say it'd be easier, even though we know what we know, it would still be easier next time than it was last time because the fear of the unknown is gone. We know what it looks like. We know what to expect. Why do you think, I believe, now it's a theory, but I do believe the Apostle Paul was the man called up to the third heaven. And I believe he, that's the reason he was given, allowed to be given the thorn in the flesh to keep him from being exalted above measure. Can you imagine what Lazarus must have thought when they tried to kill him after Jesus has already brought him back to life? He just laughed. He said, what are you going to do, kill me? I've been to the other side. You can't scare me because heaven awaits me. Paul said, I'm caught between a rock and a hard place. In the King James, he said, I'm in a strait betwixt two. I'm pinched up, wanting to go on and be in that great place, but it's more expedient for me to stay here and be found faithful. Death is not preferential. The good news, death is defeated. I love those last six or eight verses of 1 Corinthians 15, that resurrection chapter. Because the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, any of you ever grow up watching Little Rascals? Y'all remember that? Remember Spanky and Froggy and remember all those? You know, they had the high sign. You remember the high sign? To get into the he-man-woman-hater club? That was the high sign. Don't look at me like you didn't watch that stuff. It'd be a lot better if that's what we watch now. But this was the high sign, and except for alfalfa, they were all he, men, women haters. Alfalfa was just a lover boy. He always got himself in trouble with all the boys, but they, all, they had another sign for the girls, and it wasn't for membership. It was, 
Well, you know what? The Apostle Paul looked straight in the face of death and with the power of the Holy Spirit went. He said, oh, death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? It's all swallowed up in my Savior. What have you got on me? There is no hold. There is no fear. There is no dread. The good news is... Death is defeated. It's controlled by God. He said it's in His hand. It's in His hand. When God wanted it to rain with Noah, it rained. When He wanted it to stop, it stopped. When He wanted them to speak different languages because of their arrogance, at the Tower of Babel they did. When God wanted the Red Sea to part, it did. When He wanted it to close, it did. When He wanted the sun to stop, it did. When he wanted it to go dark, it did. When he created it, it was. And when it's finished, it will be. And it will all be because he is God. Hallelujah. He's our God. We just sang it. Matt did such a great job picking it out. Being followed, following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. What did we just sing? And we sing it like this. How great is our God. You know, I'd hate to go into a battle with an army that had that much enthusiasm. We talk about having American patriotism. Where is our Christian patriotism? I've said, oh, how great is our God! Has He ever done anything for you? If you're born again, He's done the greatest thing for you. And if you've been saved, you're still living. He is continually sanctifying you. He's working in you the hope of glory. Listen, and he that has begun a good work in you will finish it. He'll complete it against that day when he comes back. We are more than conquerors through him. Listen, everything, death is defeated. Facts. It's controlled by God. It's conquered by a sinless Savior. Whether... You were raised in the most wonderful home or you were raised in a gutter by alcoholic parents or no parents. God's grace is greater still. It doesn't mean everybody's going to heaven. But it means the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And once again, it's not preferential. You can't buy your way in. You can't be good enough to get in. You can't get baptized enough to get in. You can't sing good enough. You can't preach good enough. You can't look good enough to get into glory. These old silly jokes about Peter. I'm going to tell you, Peter got in the same gate we're going to go through. And it's not going to be that he's the gatekeeper. Jesus Christ will usher us in at the rapture. In our glorified bodies. But before then in our spirit. We're there through the blood of the Lamb. Death is not preferential. But look at verses 2 and 3. All things come alike to all. The bad news is all men are equal in physical death. We're all equal. Whether you die of cancer or whether you die slipping and falling in the bathtub, whether you get eaten by a shark you know, there are a lot of sharks swimming right up close to the water. 
You know what? I wouldn't even go. I'd just stay here and go to church every Sunday. The statistics are a lot better. There are a lot less people dying in Sunday school than they do at the beach. I'm just giving you truth. Now I'm laying some truth on you. You know what I can't stand? The one thing that really scares me a lot of times is lightning. I've been around tornadoes, been in hurricanes. We moved to South Alabama. I just heard about hurricanes. My first act as pastor when we moved to Alabama was to convene the deacon body to call off church because a hurricane was coming in. First, my first official act as pastor, dealing with a hurricane. We hunkered down all day long, 70 mile an hour winds and rain and all that. We, I've seen tornadoes. I watched one cross the road right in front of me one day up home. I watched it tear down stuff all through Alabama. Watched it destroy part of Prattville in Alabama. Watched it just about absolutely decimate around Tuscaloosa and that whole area there. Tornadoes. But you know what? I can see a tornado coming. I can see a hurricane coming. You don't see lightning come. You don't see lightning come. It's there. It's, you know what? We all think, and I've heard people say, you try to witness to them, they say, I'm just not ready. I'm, not, I'm just not ready. I'm going to tell you, death is quicker than lightning. No one gets up in the morning and says, I think today's going to be the day. This is the day somebody's going to run a red light and hit me. This is the day that a terrorist is going to bomb my school or my work. This is, this is the day that I'm going to have some freak accident. Listen, all men are equal in physical death. The good news, all men are not equal in eternal destiny. He said, there is an evil among all things that are done under the sun. There is one event unto all. Yes, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil. And madness is in their heart while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. This is not all there is. And we are not equal in eternal destiny. When we put the one who can do something about it in between us and the grave, the cross. The cross of Christ. Look in verse 4 through 6. For to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. We get up every day and we think, oh yeah. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. You know, I believe Solomon was referring to himself as an aged, big, strong, dying line who had lost all focus and the living hope that is within him. Do you know what the Bible says is our living hope? Knowing that there is going to be an appearing of our great God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look it up. Titus 2.13. That's our blessed hope. Our living hope is in Christ and in Him alone. We need to look. The bad news in this text, optimism is not faith. Just, just hoping against hope. 
optimism. I'm just positive. We just need to be positive. We don't need to talk about death. And, and, and you know, some people say, I don't, I don't like them old hymns and stuff. They talk too much about blood. And I got news for you. You won't get to heaven without the blood of Jesus. Well, we don't talk about the cross and stuff. Because it, it's, just, it's just so sad. We just talk about the resurrection. I got news for you. You don't have a resurrection without the death on the cross. Without the lamb, there cannot be any sacrifice. Without sacrifice, there cannot be any atonement. And all of that wouldn't matter if Jesus didn't overcome it all. Optimism is not faith. Don't don't live your life just hoping against hope. Have you ever seen someone that works harder to get out of work than they do to work? They're always looking for the easy way of doing things. There's some things in life, listen to me. There's some things in life, it's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. I remember my granddaddy taking me out there to weed the tomatoes. And there's no easy way. The plant, you know, you can't can't even run over those things. Yeah, you can spray some stuff, but most... Hand, one by one. And I was looking at the back. Around my house, there's these vines, these flowering vines, the kind that you're supposed to have, I guess, that grows with a trellis and all this. But in that is grass grown up all in it. And I went all biblical. I mean, I'm a pastor, so I went biblical. I said, wheat and tares. So the best thing to do is just get rid of it all. Because ain't no way I'm going to sit down and pick each blade of grass. If I want that vine to stay, it's the only thing I can do. There's no easy way to do it. We need to understand. When it comes to life and death, there's no easy way. You just got to deal with it. And optimism, you can be as positive as you want. And smile and say, I just don't believe it's going to happen. And die with a smile on your face. And emptiness in your head and your heart. I just don't believe it's going to happen. I don't. I'll tell you a sad story. I had a cousin who had a very severe aneurysm. We got word. She was one of the closest to me in age. She was about three and a half, four years older than me. She was 41 had two children that were pretty much grown, eight, uh, 20, 22, something like that. And I was already pastoring, had been pastoring for a while. But they called me and said, your cousin has had an aneurysm and it don't look good. And so I jumped in the truck and I took, o- took out over there. And my mother's side of the family Mother had two older sisters and two younger brothers, and all of them had kids, and then grandkids, and we'd all go to that little house that, I don't know how we'd put 48 people in an 1,100-square-foot house, but somehow we'd do it, and there'd just be people sticking out of every window, and cubby hole, and there's people all over the place down there, and cousins, and all this, and we were just pretty close. Every holiday, every holiday, we were there. And so we'd all grown up together and stuff, and I walk in, and I go back there, and I pray, 
And I talked with the doctor and the nurses, and the doctor looked at me, and I said, listen, I'm her cousin, but I'm also a pastor, and I'm kind of, kind of a spiritual advisor for a lot of the family. And I think my middle brother was standing there with me. I said, just tell me what's going on. He said, she's not here. She's brain dead. There, there is no, no brain waves. There's none of that. I said, okay. That's what I need to know. Truth's truth. Right? That's what I'm talking about. Truth's truth. And so I walk out, and I began to talk with the family and to share some of that. Well, our older cousin is about three years, two years older than her, two or three years older than her. She just went into a tither. And she said, I just believe, I just believe she's going to be all right. I just believe that, 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 that maybe they just read the test wrong. I just believe. I said, listen to me. They didn't read the test wrong. And no matter what you believe, she is not here. She's gone. She's gone. And see, our minds, we have a hard time dealing with that kind of heavy truth, don't we? But the truth is, Three days later, I preached her funeral. Optimism is not faith. Time flies, and it cannot be changed. Can't be changed. What else are you going to say about that? You know, I often think, and I saw someone post this weekend... It's been six years since my 30-year class reunion. Someone posted, oh, we need to do this again. I'm like, yeah, let's wait 24 more years. I mean, once every 30 years, that's enough. Time can't be changed. Time flies. Age will come. You know, oh, time stands still. If it does, they mark it on the right side of the tombstone. If you're getting older, then you're still living. Age will come. Can't be stopped. Can't stop it. You can live in denial. You can take something for it. It's not going to stop it. An outlook, uh, outlook doesn't equal outcome. That whole positive sincerity my, I've got a good outlook. I've got a great outlook. I know a lot of people that's had the greatest business plan with the greatest outlook, and by two years we'll be recouping, and by four years we'll be in the black, and we'll be putting money back in, and then we're going to expand. And within about eight months, nothing went right, and the bubble burst, and they were broke. Because outlook doesn't equal outcome. And just because you're positive and you're absolutely... I, have you ever been so absolutely positive you were right that it just about killed you when you realized you were wrong? It was, it was not even as bad that you were embarrassed about being wrong, but just in the fact you were so sure you were right. Y'all don't know how that feels, do you? You still, you still consume with the fact that you're always right. Sometimes I'm just absolutely just positive. I left something here. And when I do find it or somebody else finds it for me, 
I didn't leave it there. A couple weeks ago, I couldn't find, well, I told you about my ring. I was absolutely positive I lost it. I could not believe, as, I don't take my rings off. I just, I'm, my, my wedding ring, I don't take my wedding ring off. Just don't. If it gets caught on something, jerks my finger off, well, it'll still be on my finger. Because I don't take it off. But I looked down, and it wasn't there. And I'd been gone. I'd went and played golf in a tournament. I'm like, it's come off. I pulled my glove off. It's come off. I've been trying to exercise more and do a little jogging and walking and eating better and stuff and lost a little bit of weight. And I thought, it's just slid off and it's gone. I'm sick. I'm sick. How am I going to tell Becky I've lost my 20-year wedding? My old band I got put up. This is my 20-year wedding band she gave me. How am I going to tell her that? I walk in, and I was out there still tearing the vehicle apart, and Emily and Ethan went in, and Emily said, thank Daddy lost his wedding ring. Well, I'm glad she did that. You know why? She said, no, he didn't. Sitting here beside the bed, he took it off and slid beside the bed. Now, I only noticed it after I drove 300 miles, up there, played in the tournament all day for a friend of mine's church. Took the glove off, put it on, took it off, put it on. All this, washed my hands, everything. Drove all the way back and was pulling in the driveway. And then we said, where's your ring? That's the first time we noticed it. Well, before I left, it had gotten so loose that I didn't want to lose it. You ever done that? You ever try to keep from losing something that you hide it from yourself? So I hit, you know, I, I, look, I play hide and go seek with myself all the time. It's fun. My outlook didn't equal my outcome. My outlook was very grim. I couldn't find it. I've lost it. Truth was, no, I didn't. It was right there all the time. It was there even when I didn't realize that I thought it was gone. Sometimes in our life, listen, if you're born again and you get depressed, you get despondent, you get down and out, you don't feel safe, you ain't even acting safe. But if you're born again by the blood of Jesus and you don't even realize the depth of it, it does not change the fact He has you. He has never lost you. He has never forsook you. And he said when he gets to the Father, all that God, my Father, has given me, I've not lost a one. Outlook doesn't equal outcome. Now listen. The good news Bad news is optimism isn't faith. And outlook doesn't always equal outcome, but the good news in this, outcome does provide hope. Knowing there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun, we can find hope, right? Have you ever went to minister to somebody who'd been given bad news? You ever went to some elderly person that seemed like they'd lost everything and all their family was gone and things were just sad, you thought. And so you went over there to cheer them up and you left and they ministered to you. 
You ever went and stood in line at a funeral home and by the time you got through the line, they had loved on you and ministered in the grace and the power of the comfort of the Holy Spirit more than you did to them? It's because their outcome provides hope. And listen, if you're born again by the blood of Jesus, that's what the world needs today because there is no hope. There's no hope in anything. There's no hope in politics. There's no hope that everything's going to just be all right. You take all the guns away, there's still not going to be any hope. You can cure cancer, there's still going to be no hope because there's still sin in this world and people's going to still die. The good news is our outcome ought to be providing us hope and living in the truth brings clarity. Look with me. He said... In verse 5, for the living know that they shall die. Gives us clarity. When you can see that that grave is not all there is, it's like that old gospel song, death ain't no big deal. But the dead know not anything, neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Let me finish. Look in verses 7 through 10. I want you to understand. The bad news, you're going to die. You, not us, not them, you. In your head right now, it's going to be hard to deal with. It's going to be hard to deal with. In your heart, in your mind right now, be honest before God and say, I'm going to die. Just say it to yourself inside. I'm going to die. Young people say it. I am going to die. That is the bad news. The good news is because of that truth, you can begin to live now. Now. Right now. Not when I graduate. Not when I get through my degrees. Not when the kids get a little bit older. Not when everything has changed. Not when I've got more money. You can begin to live now. Look in verse 7. Go your way, eat the bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepts your works. The good news is you can begin to live now. Start living. Start living every day. Every day. Now he's not talking about living up in a hedonistic way where God don't care. You know what's going to happen. You're going to die. So carpe diem. Seize the day. Drink it up. Live it up. Do whatever you want. I'm going to tell you. Young people, especially, you do not see what the fields of harvest look like with the seeds of sin just yet. But when you start getting my age and more, then you look back over fields and wish you had never planted those seeds. Am I right, adults? And so, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For what you sow, that shall you also reap. And so you need to understand, we need to start living for Jesus today. What is it that God's wanted you to do? Take a mission trip? Give to something, help with the youth, teach Sunday school, sing in the choir, sing a special. Start living today. Go your way, eat your bread. What do we say? Thank you, Lord, for our daily bread. 
Why do we say that? Why did he say that in our, our model prayer? It was a spiritual look back at manna and what God did for them. When, when did they go collect manna? And how often? Every morning except one. They gathered enough on Friday to provide for the Sabbath on Saturday. But every day they give thanks because every day God is faithful. You know what we want? We want a 55-gallon drum of faith. We want to store it up and then God just get, and we can just take it with us. But God says whether you go on vacation, whether you're in the hospital, whether you're on the ball field, whether you're at home watching TV, you've got to seek me every day and seek me early while I may be found. We need to live in him every day and be thankful. Every day. Verse 8 he says, let your garments be always white and let your head lack no ointment. It means start living everywhere in everything you do. It means living in the clear clarity, the pureness that is in Christ, being anointed in His power and His presence to be everything God wants you to be. Have you become hard? Have you become bitter? Have you become just harsh? Do you know what? We always like to tell young people, God don't like mean. I'm going to tell you something. God don't like old, harsh, mean either. God don't like it when we just get mean and we get, we just smell old. We just say, well, I'm old, I'm going to act old, and I got a right. Nobody got a right to be mean. Nobody's got a right to be harsh and hateful and just arrogant and obnoxious. The only one that has a right to do anything was the most loving of them all. Jesus Christ. Look, start living everywhere because in Christ you've been anointed. He says, stay under the anointing because right there he says, let your head lack no ointment. It means prayed up. Being prayed up. Stayed up in the power and presence of Jesus. Start living every day and everywhere. Start loving. He said in verse 9, live joyfully with the wife whom you have loved all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity. For that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor, which thou takest under the sun. Listen to me. He is saying, God has given you relationships. He's given you a spouse. Stop looking anywhere and everywhere for anything else that will suit your fancy. The world throws every kind of false facade of relationships at us. But he's telling us, if you want to start living, you need to start loving. And in loving, you love everyone. People don't look like you, don't act like you, don't even, don't even, they don't even like you. Enemies. I've been very convicted about this lately. Lately. He said, God said, you know, it's real easy to pray for the church members. Other night I had one of them sleepless nights. Man, I couldn't sleep for nothing. Just lay there, toss and turn. You know them nights when you're just exhausted and you, and you fall off to sleep and about 45 minutes later you're staring at the fan and your mind begins to race and, and I began to pray. And I started down the aisle. And first of all, it was the night after our deacons meeting, and it wasn't because of that. 
I went back and ran two and a half miles and I did it too late. All amped up, couldn't sleep. And so I'm laying there. And so I started going around. I started calling all the deacons by name. And I called all the deacons' wives by name. And then I called all the deacons' children by name. Asking God's blessing, direction. And then I called all the staff members' names. And then I went to my family and I started, well, mom and dad and brothers and sister-in-laws and, and, and nephews and nieces and, and all of that. And I went down the line and praying for all the family. And then I came back in here and I started praying for all the ministries and praying for the youth and calling them by name and the children and the vacation Bible school workers and the Sunday school teachers and, and, and the greeters and the security team. And I started naming all those. And God says, you done yet? I said, yeah, can I go to sleep? He said, no, not yet. So God, I pray. He said, what about the enemies? And I'm not joking. So I said, what about your enemies? I said, yeah, what about them? I knew the answer. He said to me, you know what I told you. You know, it's like when you go to your dad, when, and, and he's not being mean, but he's being frank and truthful, and he wants you to be truthful with yourself, that kind of God in the garden when he says, Adam, where are you? And God says, what about your enemies? And I said, yeah. He said, well, don't you remember what I told you? Yeah, Father, I do. You said to bless them. You said to pray for those who curse me. He said, no, I didn't stop there, did I? I said, no, sir. You told me to pray for them, but then you told me to bless them. I said, Father, I, I'm, I'm going to be real honest with you. It's hard. You know, it's hard enough to pray for them. But have you ever noticed you can't stay mad at somebody you pray for? But if you really want to amp it up and be truthful biblically and grow in a, a relationship with the Lord, bless them. Because when you try to say it's like, I mean, it just sticks in your crawl. You're like, how can I bless somebody? It's like trying to give them a new car and they hate your guts. They've tried to cost you your job. They've been mean and obnoxious to your family. God said, bless them. You know what I finally come to the conclusion? God, I don't know what that means. In my heart, I really don't know what that means. But your word says do it. And so God, bless them however you see fit. Start loving everyone. And he said in verse 10, Love in everything. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Youth, was it hot in Shelby, North Carolina this week? I can't hear this. It was. It was hot. Is it miserable? Don't you wish you had not gone? You just stayed here? Oh, so... You glad you went? Oh, you are? So you're telling me it was worth it. Even when it was hot and miserable, and the food sometimes maybe wasn't as good as you'd like it to be? Because, see, you can love everything and everyone. And see, that's the thing. It's because of your love for everyone that made living and loving everything possible. 
It's so much more pleasant to live your life when you love your Lord as they come to the instruments. What's the bad news? You're going to die. The good news, God's in control. And you can begin to live today. If you'll give your life, your heart to Jesus Christ, surrender your will, surrender your sin, ask the Lord to forgive you, cleanse you, acknowledge Him as the only Savior, the only Lord that can do anything about your life. Maybe you need to come back and surrender to His Lordship, that you're living a lie, not living life. You've let your optimism cloud the outlook you can sit around and hope that bad things are going to way, go away, but the only way you can know that, God, that anything's going to change is give it to God. If you're tired of the same old, same old, then come give it to Jesus. Stand and come. Come.